Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah here, and welcome to season four of Principle of Charity. Once again, we have a terrific lineup of topics and guests for you, starting with, in celebration of the Oscars, the spectacular Academy Award-winning Jane Campion. In fact, in our conversation today, Lloyd is the only person who hasn't won an Oscar, and embarrassingly enough, he hasn't even been nominated. Nevertheless, we have a great episode in store for you, and as always, if you're enjoying the show, please, please leave a review and spread the word about Principle of Charity. Over to Emil, Lloyd, and Jane. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman, and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Now let's get on to today's Principle of Charity personal challenge. The Principle of Charity is about encouraging as much cooperation as possible. Which problems of cooperation do we face and how do we solve them? That's where game theory, a theory we have referred to often in the show, may be relevant. Game theory makes a principal distinction between zero-sum and non-zero-sum games. Zero-sum games are competitive interactions that have a winner and a loser. One's gain is another's loss. Non-zero-sum games are cooperative interactions that can have two winners. They are win-win situations. And so the principle of charity personal challenge this week is... When you are next in a conflict or disagreement, can you define how you and the other person can both come out winners? Today's episode is a spotlight episode where we focus in on the principle of charity itself. In these spotlight episodes, we bring on a guest whose work and interests helps us shine a light on a part of the principle of charity. So far, we've had Tim Minchin, we've had Jonathan Rauch, and most recently, Claire Lehman. Today, we are lucky enough to have and have enticed multi-academy award-winning writer and director Jane Campion onto the podcast to really burrow into creativity and how it can help us enter into the world of the other. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jane. Jane was born in New Zealand and has directed many feature films, including The Piano, for which she won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, becoming the first woman to receive this award. The film was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including nominations for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay the latter of which she won. Thus far, Jane has received two Academy Awards, two BAFTA Awards, and two Golden Globe Awards, and many other prizes. Jane is also the only woman to be nominated twice for the Academy Award for Best Director. The two-season limited series, Top of the Lake, which Jane created, co-wrote, executive produced, and directed five of the 12 episodes, received eight Emmy Award nominations. Most recently, her film, The Power of the Dog, was nominated for 12 Oscars, 
and she won Best Director as well as winning countless other awards, including the BAFTA Award for Best Film. And Jane was appointed Dame Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Film. Now, Emil, you know Jane very well, don't you? I do indeed. You produced The Power of the Dog with Jane and also produced both seasons of Top of the Lake. So you've been Jane's producing partner now for over a decade. And tell us a little bit more about the conversation today. Thanks very much, Lloyd. Yeah, Jane is someone I've worked with uh, for years, but also someone I call a friend. It's actually impossible to work with Jane without being connected deeply to her. She's just she's just the sort of person who who sees right through you and calls on the whole of you to be present, not just your work self. She's demanding, hugely insightful, uh, deeply compassionate, but also playful and joyous. But above all, and most importantly for this episode, she's just hugely creative. Now, we've had a lot of incredible intellectuals on this podcast burrowing into all aspects of the principle of charity, but, but what we've been missing is this creative lens. Creativity as I've been fortunate enough to witness and be part of over many decades, is an extraordinary movement towards the lives of others. It's an incredibly powerful muscle that forces you outside of yourself and into the most generous version of other experiences, as, as you can't create rich and believable characters unless you know them from the inside out. Now, given we're a podcast about curiosity, about truly hearing the most generous version of other viewpoints, I was excited to get on someone who can talk to us in a deep way about creativity and what it might offer for our endeavor, Lloyd. And by far the best person I could think of is Jane Campion. So let's bring her on. Well, welcome, Jane. I'm I'm very fortunate to count you as not just a producing partner and a friend, but but surprisingly uh, a fan of this podcast. So before we delve into this conversation around creativity <laughs> and the risk of sounding a little self-serving, I'd, I'd love to get your just brief thoughts on what has drawn you to this podcast, what connects you to what we're doing. Well, when you um, sent me a link to it, I was probably what, a year or so ago. Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, Um I, I, I mean, I listened to it and I was really surprised how taken I was by it. I think it was it was addressing something I was really struggling with in understanding politics in the world today and this principle of charity, this idea that through giving up wanting to win mm. um, and really, really investing in like trying to understand whatever's been discussed, you know, like having a, a greater depth of understanding of it, that the gain was um, really much greater than the sort of push to just get your opinions um, through. And, you know, I was guilty as charged, you know, like I push my opinions very strongly, <laughs> get all worked up and, um, you know, and don't actually enjoy it. So mm. um, I really loved it and actually was you know mouthing it around a few times you tried it out didn't you with some friends you're like I let's try it out <laughs> let's 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 make this live let's take this to the streets yeah and I, I i thought it was a great idea and also i really enjoyed the people that you were talking to and um some of the discussions like i just listened to another one recently about uh, does inequality matter for example mm. with Russ Roberts. Russ Roberts, yeah. yeah. He's an economist and, you know, the, the more you dug into him, the less it felt like he was convinced about his own, yeah, yeah. Of his own point, you know, that he felt that, 
you know, perhaps capitalism was still the best economic strategy, um, like prosperity, but he wasn't really sure about that even anymore. It's interesting. If you ask the right questions, you can, and Russ is a, such a deep thinker, he's thought about all these things, but if, if, this, if the format's yeah. right, you can get some interesting responses. Well, let's, let's jump into creativity because mm. that's really what we want to okay. burrow into with you, Jane. And, you know, the fictional lives you've created across your amazing body of work feel more three-dimensional than so many people I've met in real life. And I'm trying to understand, like, when you dream up characters and worlds where where does it come from does it does it feel like does it feel like it's coming from inside you or are you spending a lot of time observing other people imagining what it's like to be them where do you feel like your creative worlds emerge from uh, yeah well I think just in brief I would say all those things <laughs> <laughs> um however I would say like I've always been super curious about other people Hmm. And, you know, like as a child, it was, you know, it was notable that I was acting a bit like an anthropologist because my own family was so different or, you know, they were theatre people. Like, we didn't have hardly any family because my mother's two parents died when she was nine and my father's um, family um, didn't exist for us. His dad was dead and his mother was a Plymouth brethren and we weren't even allowed to see our grandmother. Uh, hmm. So... I was very fascinated by other people's families and if children invited me home to their house, they'd get quite disappointed because I'd be grilling their mother you know, <laughs> about <laughs> how she did things, you know, what, what was the dinner going to be, you know, and um, I guess I thought they, you know, probably owned normalcy and that didn't happen in our place and I was fascinated by, you know, how to create that. But it just anyway ended up that I was a curious person and people would have to tell me to stop staring, you know. Yeah, right. I didn't even yeah. realise I was doing it. Um, so I, th- I think I'm just super interested in people and how we are, you know, as humans. And, and then I think one of the big discoveries for me, you know, in terms of creativity um, was uh, how to build a, a pathway to the subconscious. I didn't even right. know it was possible to do that, to be honest. I had no idea. Um, I, I found out when I was at art school and I sat down uh, to write a little script and I thought I had a great topic. I don't remember what it was now, but I wrote one and a half pages and I realised I'd run out of ideas and that it was complicated and that things had to intertwine with each other, you know, themes and characters and narrative, and I hadn't a clue. And I just thought, oh, God, you know, it seems like, you know, this is much harder than I've got the capacity for. Uh, you know, I think I have to admit I'm just not clever enough. That's really, mm. really difficult. So I just put it away and then I found myself going back to look at the, the notes um, three weeks later and all the things I couldn't do then, I seemed to know what to do next, you know, without having done anything. Mm. <laughs> and mm. I suddenly I started to realise that, oh, you know, if you can pose the right question um, or like, you know, say, oh, this is where I'm stuck or this is what I don't have the answer to. To yourself, you're talking yeah. about. Pose the yes, right questions right. yourself. Pose the right questions yourself or, like, name the thing you don't have that, you know, your subconscious will work on it for you while you're asleep. I don't know how it does it. It's a mystery. But definitely um, if there's an answer possible, it will come, you know, we'll find it for you. And then I started to challenge it even further, like when I started to, you know, so I did manage to write a little script 
Mm-hmm. And then when I was at film school and was trying to write my graduation film, I remember I had some ideas like, you know, I was going to write something about being a 13, 14-year-old girl, like, you know, how it is to be a child going into adulthood with all the mystery of sexuality and emotions that kind of land on you and you don't understand how to manage. And um, so I had that as a sort of basic idea and one or two thoughts about it. And I just made myself sit down. Um, I was visiting my parents on their farm and, and just locked myself in the room and sat down at not in a very comfortable way, at a coffee table, actually, I can remember. It was so memorable. Anyway, I sat there for four hours with nothing mm. else but um, paper and pen. I hadn't read about how to do this anywhere. It, I just did it, and I just tried writing out all sorts of stuff and just kept writing and, and writing and different things, and I didn't really know if I had any success, but the next day I was going to do the same thing, and I started off by rereading what I'd written, and I noticed that a lot of things that I th- thought that I wrote that was rubbish were actually really good and things that I thought, well, oh, this is going to be good, you know, when I look back, that's clever, you know, mm. seemed really obvious and empty. So it was like a, a kind of incredible the beginning of trusting this other resource. And do you see, is your subconscious you then? Like are you, is this a relationship with yourself or is it a relationship with some mystery, mysterious, yeah. uh, you know, extra extra human aliens who, I think. Who you have alien who you have to <laughs> you have to coax like how do you yeah the, the elves golden elves you know that <laughs> <laughs> um, and spin um you know golden outfits for you while you're asleep at night I mean I do think it's so mysterious I don't even begin to know how it happens but you know how we talk about synchronicity and things like yeah. that at times yeah. or you know you think um of somebody and the telephone rings and it's them um, it, it has that sort of sense of um, connection with the with unknown forces. But you have to cultivate that connection in a sense, don't you? You, 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 you have to give the time. more you cultivate yeah. it, or, or or make time. Is it? Is it like you have to be available? I think, or um, can you force I, it? I, I don't think you can force it. That's the problem, Emil. Yeah, <laughs> I I think it requires time. I, I mean, I've since you know heard other people talking about their relationship with the same um, mysterious resource and um, all of it has a similar bend to it and that is that you allow time and it's almost as like you know you're trying to make befriend these little creatures in a forest you know and Mm. they're (laughs) figuring out whether they're going to trust you or not you know are you going Mm. to spend the time here Mm. for them to be trust you and come out and join you you know Mm. or are you going to give up after half an hour and that's why I think, you know, often the best results come for me after, you know, in the fourth hour. Or that's why I think a lot of people, when they go to write or uh, prepare material or think or paint or whatever, that sometimes they will go away. And, you know, I heard Paul Thomas Anderson talking about going to borrowing a friend's um, cabin somewhere really remote with, you know, a scary snake outside, which made <laughs> sure he stayed inside. And how he did, you know, most of the writing for Magnolia there. And um, for me too, I really feel like those that isolation and that uh, last big push, you know, or the big push like you work day and night, it really brings to the fore all the um, all your imaginary or resources. Yes, 
or the yes. resource of imagination. And but now I come to actually really rely on it. I, I you know, I'd see it as another arm or leg or something like that, that it's so reliable. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. And it, and it really follows into my next question, which is about the industry that mm. I guess we're, we're, we're both in, this film and, and TV industry, and you're a writer and a director and a producer, of course, and working to a time pressure. Like, I remember... When I started out in the industry, uh, I was working with a composer and couldn't believe that he would he, he came back overnight and had come up with a theme. And it's like, how do you create with deadlines? Can, can you make yourself be creative or do you have to just make yourself available for creativity? And I'm, I'm thinking about obviously the different process as a writer, you've got a lot more time, but still there are deadlines. But a director, when I see you on set and, you know, you've been, you've spent, two years thinking about this scene and you've got one day to shoot it. Mm. How do you be creative and, you know, hear those voices uh, yes. from the other side when, when you know, you know, overtime gets called in, in, in three minutes? I think it, the depth of creative possibility on set is re- reduced. You know, you're not going right. to hear anything absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> However, you know, you do have to manage those stresses and pressures, you know, like you were speaking about. And one thing I found when I first started directing was that I did have panic attacks. Yeah. On the set. Yeah. And it's the most horrible feeling, as anybody knows, when you have, you know, a panic and you just freeze. Yeah, it's the worst. Brain. You can't yeah, see anything. No. You can't hear the elves, that's for sure. No elves, no nothing. And um, so I sort of started to think about, oh, God, you know, I can't have that happening all the time and you know it was partly to do with the fact that if things didn't go exactly the way that I was preparing for it mm. I didn't have any resources to pivot yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't I just yeah I, I was not flexible so like to you know to gain some flexibility or add flexibility to what I could do like you, you know my process is pretty like work heavy you know, what I would do if it's a really important scene is I'll draw it many, many times in different ways, you know, because when I'm drawing, I love to, you know, I'm thinking and I'm relaxed and I'm happy. Yeah. And then, you know, I keep drawing it until I feel, you know, a little bit excited about the way that the the scene could be shot. And then I start to think about all the difficulties of it, you know, what sort of weather do we need to have, what would happen if it rained, you know, okay, I've talked about the scene on the hill and the power of the dog before. Um mm. Well, you know, on Queenstown Hill in the bad weather, you wouldn't be able to barely stand up, you know. So mm. there mm. are really weather difficulties that just would make that. You have to tell the, the you know, production office that can't be done that day. <laughs> um, so you warn them ahead and... You're trying to prepare as much as possible. Yeah, you prepare, you know, for... with some things you can, you know, shoot in the rain, shoot in fine weather. You know, and then you include rehearsal a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, quite often actors like a lot of space to feel it for themselves and you don't want to take that for them, you know. Yeah. It feels like their creativity and it is with actors of, this, you know, like Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons that, you know, you really do want their input. So, yeah, and, and the weird thing is that that strength of imagination or that practice of imagination on that scene seems to be um, that when you get there, you don't really have to look at your notes again. You've really thought of almost every possibility and you feel like quite quickly you can respond to the opportunities right. that uh, right. present themselves right. and know what's best. And I think the feeling of that you're doing uh, the best job you can given the circumstances is about all you can hope for, you know. Um, and 
and then you have to deal with that sense of anxiety that you aren't, you know, that things aren't, you know, this is an important scene, let's hope that everything plays out and you can't put that pressure on anyone or the mm. actors or everybody knows that. So you, you just have to bring a light spirit to it. And I think for me, you know, like as you know, I used to do yoga um, every day for about 20 years and that really relaxed my body because I can be quite uptight. Mm. Um, now I do Renshu, which is type of Qigong, mm. similar similar kind of takeaways from it that focusing on the body, relaxing the body, not getting into your head. When mm. you're in your head, you can. that's when you panic, that's when you freeze. But just trusting the body, trusting the body's intelligence in these situations. Yeah, and, and what I've noticed about <laughs> your process is you protect very fiercely the creative space within which creativity can emerge. For example, the rehearsal period, you, you, you want and need as much rehearsal as possible. You know, so those walls are sort of quite high and then within that it's time for play. And it's that, it seems, it's, it's, it's a complex thing in our business, isn't it, to have the, the structure that allows for freedom and play and playfulness yes. and, and that negotiation's a difficult one. But you've, you've sort of charted your own territory through that, I think. It's something I did right at the beginning, like, um, I don't know how come, like from my very first feature, Sweetie, I had three weeks rehearsal. That was like a budget of not even a million. <laughs> and it's never gotten any more or any less. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how you make you talk about that. But one thing I think about, you know, the film business is that a lot of things happen like it's the army or something, you know. A lot of the structuring and productions is around um, habit and mm. forms and previous ways of managing everything. And they're not always efficient and they don't all, you know, often put in prime place creativity. Um, and it, it's really good to rethink those um, mm. methods and figure out what would really work for you because, I mean, the whole thing about making a film that works or a TV series that works is trying to find something that you can offer that isn't being offered, that yeah. some knowledge, some capacity, some knowing, some brilliance, if you like, um, that will give to the audience real real value. We're just moving now a little bit to to the resonance of some of the stuff to to principle of charity, I guess. I mean I was thinking that I mean, this is a bit sounds pretty obvious, but I it wasn't at the time that a writer once explained to me ages ago that the secret to creating great on screen baddies is to realise that the baddies don't think they're bad. You know, they they may act terribly, but to them they are just like we are to us, fully fledged human beings who've got the same sense of reason and righteousness mm. we all have. And I thought that looking at baddies might be helpful to sort of deepen our understanding and principle of charities. I imagine that one of the most generous acts of writing or directing is to create fully formed bad characters or... Flawed, I think, I think is what they call them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to inhabit these characters from the inside who in real life, I'm just looking at that distinction, in real life, you'd probably run a mile from these characters. You might not be so generous. How do you create these characters? Do, do you fall in love with them? And I guess... You know, does it make you less judgmental, even kinder, to real-life bad people? Well, you know, like personally I'm really irritated by alpha men. They just have a way of making the space smaller and, you know, life more difficult for almost everybody, including themselves. But And for that reason, it's good to know your enemy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not been kind enough to yourself. You brought a lot of love to Phil and no, generosity. I'm about that, but... It is, it is really, it is interesting to me to know my enemy, you know, and to know how they became that way. And actually, 
how lonely they can be there. I am, as I say, really curious rather than judgmental. I, you know, like I'm not really a moralist. That doesn't really interest me. Say so you're bad, you're good, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. I feel everybody is bad and good and their circumstances kind of prescribe how much of the bad and the good that we see, you know. Um, and I think people under extraordinary pressures that behave well are just like heroes, you know. Yeah. Those are my heroes. So with Phil, you know, like I enjoy characters like like him who, I mean, I mean, it's hard to use the word baddie. I mean, I think what we're saying is that they're powerful and and don't have your best interests at heart. Uh, well, they also fulfil the role as the antagonist in the drama. I mean, you know, the characters are... The worse they are, the more cynical and, you know, bestial, mean, um, harmful, the better. And then, you know, I think then if you can find some access to their pain and their humanity... Um, you know, say like Richard III, it's quite obvious he's got, you know, a, um, a limp and a hunchback. Mm. You know, you begin to see the different kind of complexity. And uh, that's where I think things get really interesting. Yeah, and we're talking here about Phil Burbank um, previously from The Power of the Dog for, for listeners who don't know. I mean, he play, he does play that role of the antagonist in many ways. But I remember coming out of a screening of the film and some of the people I'd seen it with actually really were on his side in a way that I'd never occurred to me because not just the Richard III physical impediments, you know, that he had the, you know, s- such a yearning inside, an unfulfilled yearning. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. I think that was, um, you know, like it was definitely suggested in the novel, um, but I took that a lot further, that, um, you know, Phil's redemption, I think, is that he's a lover, that he really wants love you know that he loved Bronco Henry and now he's falling in love with Peter and it's bringing up all that heat all that hope all that excitement all that beauty that he had just um stacked away somewhere that he didn't think it was ever gonna be part of his life anymore I mean I think the hard thing the thing is with that is that you know for me if you think about what the highest moments in a person's life is I think you know like falling in love and being completely intoxicated by, you know, love and, you know, erotic excitement or, you know, finding the two combining, there's nothing much more thrilling for a human life, I think, than than that. And I guess in a lot of my work that is what has interested, you know, me. You know, like we all seek it, especially when you're young. I think when you're older, you know, that's not something you're going to have permanently. Well, it's a way of you're seeing people who might act incredibly badly on the surface but finding the shared humanity underneath. Yeah, I think I'm saying something a little bit different. Yeah. You know, talking about moments of elevated human possibility. Right. Which is, I think, really interesting and especially when, you know, a, a so-called bad character has that hope and possibility too. Do you think everybody, in a sense, can bring that? Because, I mean, if you can breathe life into characters who do really bad things on screen, create characters that feel, well, to create them, you've got to believe in their internal world. How do we mm. how do we bring that? And can everyone, you think, bring that to our normal lives where instead of seeing someone who might, yeah. uh, Lloyd had an altercation with someone before before the podcast and was, you know, pissed off with them, but you yeah, have, you know, really hot. Chicken shop. There's a lot of difficult <laughs> <people>. <laughs> But, you know, you, we all encounter really some really horrible people 
but rarely take the time that you yeah. did with Phil to unpack the inner but, yearnings. Yeah, I mean, I did have trouble and I, I, I did some very unusual things to help myself um, feel and to feel. I mean, I, I keep him at arm's length, I think, a little bit to begin with and then I felt like, oh, this is not going to be a very good film if my, you know, I, if I can't enter into the emotional right, right, face huh. of, of my lead protagonist. One of the things, um, you know, I noticed it was a missing thing and, and one of the things that turned up was I was also looking for ways that Benedict might um, enter into this character who's probably going to have the same issues that I had too mm. with him. And um, I came upon this idea for, through a friend um, of working with this woman called Kim Gillingham who does dream work. Mm. And uh, I thought oh, I'd better test this first with um, mm. Kim before I send Benedict there. Um, but anyway, I think it was the greatest help I've ever had as a director. Hmm. And um, I was convinced I wouldn't even come up with the dreams that were supposed to help me, you know, work on the issues in my script. But she had a method of talking to your subconscious, like suggesting that you did dream and then telling me to have, a, you know, a piece of paper and a pen next to the bed so that I could write down any images or anything that happened. And, you know, I tell you what, that next night I did come up with some images and I did write hmm. them down and I thought, oh, nothing will come of these surely, you know. But it was enough for her to kind of get going and work with and, you know, through the sort of series of relaxation and working with these images that came up through the dreams and her having read the script, she was able to kind of facilitate a dialogue between myself or between Phil and me and I was playing both roles. Mm. So she would say, so Phil, and she'd say, Jane, you're Phil here. Um, what does Jane need to know to tell your story? Wow, that's principle of charity, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, times and, ten. Yeah, and um, Phil had a lot of doubts that I had. What it <laughs> Did he think you were up to it? Uh, no, he didn't think so. He, think, he thought that I. He thought he said in a kind of snarly voice, which was me speaking, like, "Well, yeah. I should have to take that fucking lab coat off first of all." You know. Right. Right. You know, yeah. you should have to get dirty. She's going to um, have a chance of understanding, and you know, it's the lab coat that sort of objective. Yes. I'm looking in from the outside exactly. uh, and, yeah. and and yeah. judging and commenting and moralizing. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I was doing the talking, of course, but somehow I've been hypnotized or whatever to be yeah. really fluent with it, and I sort of immediately understood. That's right, of course, you know. And how did she work with Benedict? She did, I think she did the same work. I mean, it's private work, so, you know, I don't dig into, you know, quite personal. I mean, he might be using quite personal knowledge to do it. Yeah. But all I can say is that I had, you know, really sexual images that came up that were like I was a gay man, you know. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and I was sort of really grateful for them. Like, you know, there was a big flower on my lap and in the middle of it was a stamen, which was actually a penis, you know. Huh. And I thought of it as this beautiful jewel. And I sort of, I kind of realised that, you know, I'd always thought, oh, they must feel so much shame. But actually, in his case, I had a different understanding that actually he felt a kind of gloriousness around his uh -huh. masculinity and sexuality and that maybe with him and Bronco Henry that something that they felt, you know, it felt so good from the inside, you know that yes. they see it as a kind of a jewel and a special capacity, you know, a special, you know, a special thing that they can share together. Not I mean, I guess 
not a dirty little secret. Of course, I know that everybody else, you know, may think of them as disgusting and immoral or whatever. But and it's, I mean, it's interesting because we, you know, since we're talking about using the subconscious as a way to move from the confines of ourselves with our lab coat on sort of looking at the world and judging other people mm. and and getting into you know because that's what this podcast's about how do we how do we bring generosity and curiosity to to the outside world and i hadn't really thought about the subconscious as the as a bridge to do it a sort of shared subconscious in a sense i mean i guess jung was onto something there so well, I, maybe, yeah, I mean that. i do not know how it works but i do know that it comes up with stuff that i didn't even know yeah. I had access to or thought yeah or, yeah you know, like that was it was a surprise i mean how can you completely surprise yourself you know yeah and how do you know what you don't know and you you know you in a sense again going to the format of the podcast it's only when you can find a way to come outside yourself through yeah. your subconscious or another viewpoint that you can you know I guess understand your limitations I, I wanted to just to move to move forward to a different question Jane because I was remembering also to to some of the early stages of, of my career and reading one of this writer's work and the beautifully crafted portraits of characters you know from the inside out and then being puzzled at why they as a person were so dysfunctional who seemed to have they seemed to have no emotional intelligence or ability to read people or re- interactions in real life and I've I've actually seen this quite a lot of times repeated, but I haven't quite worked out why some artists can so sensitively create and mm. imagine other worlds and other lives, but can actually be quite bad at reading like other people in a very more tra- you know normal discussions or, or just working relationship. What do you actually have any thoughts on this? Because I have no thoughts. I don't know the answer to that. No, <laughs> I don't think I know why that happens like that but you have to think of it as a blessing that they have this other capacity you know to write sensitively and beautifully and thoughtfully I mean it may be like the way we present or the persona that we present with is kind of a gnarled old thing you know through different battle scars maybe <laughs> that um, they, they have closed off a little bit um in that personal right interpersonal world, but they still have this beautiful capacity to be free and a more when they're by themselves, world. they yeah. can they can are free enough or safe enough to be able to enter into other people's. It'd be, it'd be extraordinary, yeah. Be extraordinary, it, you know. As you say, it does happen. Or maybe my only theory actually was a more like that. You know, the question of how come psychiatrists or psychologists can be a bit crazy if they seem to understand people so well is maybe they've gone too far into the other <laughs> without, you know, they've just left behind the social rules of, of normal, of normal life. Could um, be. They're, just, they're, they're freer. Yeah. It, could, it could be, but it doesn't sound like it in your example. It sounds like they no. don't sound very free, you know? No, no. Um, I mean, I think there really is freedom in the world of imagination. And, you know, a lot of people would prefer it to dealing with, you know, true interpersonal work of relationships and things, which mm. can really trip you up. <laughs> like, you know, what people really, how people really find you compared to how you think you're coming across, you know. Mm. Mm. You, you are in control of your imaginative world, um, whereas yeah. when you're opposite the desk from well, someone else yeah emil and jane can can i just add there yeah i mean isn't it easier in general to know other people than to know yourself i mean don't we generally have a better perspective of other people than ourselves and it's an illusion that we think we know ourselves and so hence 
the question of the actor, the mm. psychologist, the lawyer who believes in you know mediation but is conflictual. I mean, it, it's just really hard to know who you are. I mean, I do very much agree with that. This, I mean, I don't know. I'm just proposing here that when a new person comes into your world and, you know, it's sort of like your gold standard, you know, like you respond to them and you experience them and then from your baseline you say, oh, they're generous, they're not a very nice person, they're whatever, which seems to be quite easy to do. Uh, but when it comes to the amount of information you have about yourself, like all your contrary rubbish that goes on in your head that you don't share with anybody, <laughs> I really don't know how I come across to other people. I get quite surprised by both the compliments and, you know, people that don't like yeah, me or yeah. say nasty things mm. about me or whatever. Mm. <laughs> I mean, Lloyd, I was suggesting that in my experience, sometimes creative people can be worse than the average, but 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 it is, it is. I mean, it's it is really hard to know oneself. I mean, I, I did have an earlier question, Jane, which yeah. which this does link to a bit, is when you're creating characters, do you feel like they are expressions of yourself or do they somehow stand as children who who share some of your DNA but really aren't you? Are, are your characters you or, or not you in a sort of primal sense? Well, for me, characters come like as a voice generally, you know. They, it's a voice I seem to be able to do. Right. Um, and not like a speaking voice, but like a a way of thinking. They have a way of thinking, or you know, their dialogue is something that I, I seem to sense or feel. Uh, it's got I've got it in my in my system, and I don't know how that is. It's like whether it's from experience, or talking to other people, or mm. you know, like having a massive bank of different characters. Mm. But, you know, one of my specialists is actually, you know, um, a belligerent man, you know. <laughs> it's in you. Yeah. In I, I don't know. I, I enjoy it. I also enjoy the sort of um, play, the playing, the playing with it in a way. The playing with it. I think it's much easier to play with characters like that than like, you know, the perfect princess or, you know. And you do bring him to life, don't you? I hear you when on, on, on top of the lake, you and Gerard Lee, the other writer, you'd play these characters and create them through the act of role-playing and, and bouncing yeah, them around. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't know how to do a scene. We'll often, like, take on the different characters and take turns and see what happens when we're in a little conflict, you know, as similar to the scene. And then we might go, stop, 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 and write that down, you know? And do they do they they want to do things that surprise you? Yeah, yeah, that's the best of it. The best of it is that um, it really surprises you by how the mundane they are or, you know, something really um, coming from a, diff- a different area you just could never imagine, imagine. Yeah. without yeah. that, you know, little intercourse of discussion or role-playing. You know, we did, a, we did a podcast episode on cultural appropriation already, but I, I would be remiss not to just burrow into some of the challenges that this idea has brought up to sort of um, to creativity in a sense. How do you think about your right or even obligation as an artist and storyteller to create characters and worlds that aren't your own, to really imagine um, other experiences? And then obviously on the other hand, to respond to this challenge from marginalised groups that it can at times even feel like an act of violence to see characters from, you know, their group created and voiced by outsiders, particularly if there's a, a history of oppression there. You know, how do you process this this challenge to to unfettered creativity, or has it been tricky? 
or not? Um, well, I, I can understand um, what criticism is about, like, for example, especially from groups of people like, you know, say a, a binary trans um, woman who's transitioning or something like that that's very yeah. specific, that uh, they are anyway feeling disempowered and misunderstood, you know, and then mm. to be interpreted maybe by someone that has, doesn't know the experience mm. and has a voice could be really difficult. I mean, hopefully they might say, you know, like listen to the voice, you know, and, and think, well, actually I think that's actually really good, you know, mm. or it's all bullshit or whatever because just because you are a man or a woman doesn't mean to say that you can write, you know, as a man that you can write um, men's part better than a woman could or the vice versa, you know, like for centuries we've had to put up with men writing women's parts and some of them have done it really, really well, like Henry James. Mm. Uh, it's impossible to understand how Henry James could have written a, a character like Isabel Archer who's so incredibly detailed and um, incredible, amazing. Um, or George Eliot, who was a woman um, with, who wrote Middlemarch, is probably considered one of the greatest novels of all time, you know, write all the male characters, mm. like a crusty old priest, you know, um, who is uh, such, a, is such a brilliant characterization. So it really is, to me, and finally it's in the hands of the uh, capacity of the storyteller and the excellence and ex extreme gift of them. I think that gives you a right. You do it well. <laughs> you know, like the ticket is not, oh, that you are from, you know, that you are that exact person, but that you somehow have lent yourself completely and generously and, you know, with talent and cleverness to it such that um, people who do experience that situation, like as a young woman, I thought Henry James' Bill Archer was amazing, you know. Apparently he had a cousin who was similar to her and he must have felt it deeply. So, you know, I think research comes into it. I mean, a lot of different things comes into it. But to me, you know, I'd rather be interpreted by someone who's thoughtful and clever and has is an extraordinary artist than just someone that fit the bare requirements of similarity. It's a beautiful response. It's, I guess, research and intention and listening and then just being brilliant at bringing something to life. But then... I think ensuring that the you know you're, there's a difference between doing that and a fraud where you pretend to be a writer who's a different gender or a different ethnicity. It's still coming from you, and I guess if the audience or readers or listeners know that it's a Jane Campion interpretation or it's from Jane's world, then you know you're not pretending to be anything other than what you are. I guess. No, but I mean, if, I would imagine nobody's doing that unless they're really in some sort of deceitful practice. You know. Yeah. Like, you need. Yeah certain amount of um, transparency. Do you find that you self-censor at, at, at all in terms of creating characters without, I mean, if you ask your subconscious now, is it going, don't go there, um, I don't want to create certain characters, or you've, you've, I mean, you do seem from the outside to have risen to a level where you can, you, you've got the artistic freedom to go where you want to go. I, I don't think you can boss your subconscious around. I think if you start trying to do that, you'll lose that relationship. You know, it, it is free, fundamentally free. And, you know, you try to dream the dreams that you want to have, you know. Um, it doesn't work that way. Um, dreams, are, dreams are instructional in a very magical, crab-like way. 
in addition to your understanding of yourself and who you think you want to be or whatever because they will defy you, you know. However, you know, you might have dreamed, you might have come up with a character and you think like, oh, am I going to make a film about this? Like, that's a different question. Because, yeah, do you have to listen you know, to it? The, the, the reviewing world, the, the world that we live in as, you know, producers, directors, et cetera, um, can be a lot more uh, judgmental and, you know, it could sink a project that had a character that was complicated or difficult to some, you know, degree just on the basis of, you know, them uh, well-being, you know, evil, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and and following on for this, I was thinking about that question of who, which muse you follow or whether you follow your muse or not. And I was thinking about this tension within art over the centuries or as long as arts existed between pure creativity and art as a tool of politics. I had this imagining of a father in Lascaux's cave telling his daughter to paint a reindeer as more dangerous so he can look more like a hero and his daughter saying, Dad, I just want to express myself. And I imagine that battle of, you know, what is, is art used, you know, whenever there's power, it seems to be co-opted by those in power to push their vision of society forward. At the same time, it's also used by those who oppose power to rebel but what happens to you if one of your characters that your um, incredible um, subconscious has proffered to you wants to do something that you think's a bit politically iffy? Maybe you've created a female character who's weak and doesn't end up on top, and obviously Rose in The Power of the Dog was an example we talked about a lot. Or your character's just acting in a way that seems to be antithetical to the political agenda of the day. Where does your duty lie? Which, which muse do you follow? I'm most influenced and moved by what I perceive as being, I guess, closer to truth. But that's, you know, a very difficult thing to describe, as we all know, who, you know, it's all contextual. But you The know, truth of the characters. Area. The truth of the characters' experience. Within the story, you know, like the within context. The story. Yeah, what feels truthful, surprising, real, rather than um, following a political line. I guess you're saying if you, bo- I mean, if you boss your subconscious around or use politics to curtail mm. what they're going to do. I mean, you certainly won't be surprised, will you? It's harder for them to... Well, you, I, I don't know if you can stop the subconscious. I don't know. You know, like maybe some people have, and that's the scariest thing of all. Yeah, you know, right. these people that are professional liars, like um, Cardinal Pell maybe, you know. Um, I mean, some people believe him. I don't believe him. I mean, there's others like the, you know, doping scandal, Lance yeah. Armstrong. Now, these guys, I just don't know where they are, like, you know, if they have a conscience or what's happening. And that, I think, is the most scary thing because I'm really kept in line by the voices I can't stop popping up that go like, oh, this is bullshit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or you're a liar or you're, you know, you're self-promoting now, you're blah, blah, blah. I don't know if you have a inner voice that kind yeah. of tends to uh, comment on yourself. But I think it's what kind of keeps your you know, keep some honesty in there. And the, for the people that have actually gone beyond and or maybe they've done things that are so terrible, like, you know, maybe the members of the army in Argentina and then, you know, 1985, um, terrible things that they did, like the disappeared people, like mm. they just, they've lost it. They've lost that relationship with, with their conscience and subconscious. I just want to ask you, is there anything else, Jane, in your reflecting on yeah. on creativity and principle of charity 
that you wanted to mention? Anything else that that you know struck you about how we can harness creativity to better into the world of other people and to put aside, I guess, whatever whatever blinkers are holding us back, whether whether it is the, the subconscious um, or imagination. Yeah, I would like to say something. I think that this same capacity to put yourself deeply into another person's place actually comes um, to good use in therapy sometimes when you've got a problem with somebody. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes the therapist will get you to take the part of the person mm-hmm. uh, or, like, just pretend that you're them, you know, like I used to have a problem with my mother. I always feel like I failed her or this and that and she was mm-hmm. a heavily depressed person. And um, and then taking on their feelings, it's just so surprising. It's kind of liberating in a way to I – mean, I don't know if I'm correct or not or it's another sort of dream, but, you know, what I discovered in her was that she was just so locked in with her depression, you know, when I was playing her that she mm. couldn't really think about what I was doing at all. You know, she was blaming that. me for not doing enough or, you know. Who's my therapist? <laughs> what I love about what you're saying, which I really hadn't thought about before, is it's not just that movement from oneself into imagining the other, but yeah. it's actually if you do that and you really put yourself wholeheartedly, you can be surprised. It's like, you know, there's a whole mm-hmm. world of experiences that you even can have access to yourself if, if you mm-hmm. develop a strong enough relationship with um the multiplicities inside us all, because we never know ourselves, going back to Lloyd's point, we, we don't know ourselves. And maybe we hold the capacity, not only to know other people, to be but to be surprised by other people. That's And I guess that's the work of creativity, to create surprising other worlds and characters. What's your advice as a final question, Jane, mm-hmm. for people who want to be more creative out there? Mm. What should we do? <laughs> well, I think that there's, like, it's easy to be creative. You just have to, you know, sit down with some paint or paper and, and play. But and wait before hours, do we? <laughs> well, I mean, there's the two things. Like, It's easy to be creative and enjoy that. It's difficult to be creative um, and artful, um, and that's the discipline. Right. You know, like that's the really tough discipline. Like, What's that diff- What's that distinction between, are you saying play and art? What is art? Well, you can be creative and it means you can just satisfy those you know, creative um, instincts to do some painting and put them up on the wall around your house, which is great. Um, But it's really different when um, the difference between, you know, art or... It has to be good. You know, that that creativity is an expression. Art is good creativity. Is that what you yeah, it's in it was it's within a system that is pretty fierce, you know, like you know, it has to have consistency and outcomes and um and be original and surprising and, and to have um to have a voice, to have an original have voice. voice, you know. Yeah. That and has be disciplined, consistency. I guess, as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of discipline that's required in in understanding these principles of art making and then actually satisfying them. And, you know, I think I'm interested in them because all the best works that I've loved are involved with that dialogue. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Thanks, Jane. That was... Um, Thanks, Emil. I learned a lot. And that was part one. Part two, focusing on the principle of charity with Lloyd, will be along next week. If you enjoyed this show, the best way you can help us is by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts and by telling your friends spreading the word. We will see you next week.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.